0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, one Liel Leibovitz. One and only one. Thank only God one. for that. <laughs> Imagine two. Where would you put us? You are the only Liel Leibowitz in the world, right? We've established that. Google has established that, right? There's a lot of me, but only one. There's only one. And my other co-host, Stephanie Butnik. How are you, Stephanie? Um,
1: I'm the only one of me. Baby, that's the fun of me.
0: Um, By the way, the other Mark Oppenheimer, well, there's several, but the one you're just going to
1: let my Taylor Swift reference go (laughs) and
0: unnoticed, unmarked on this podcast. I I chuckled. (laughs) I didn't know. But the I do want to say that the the Mark Oppenheimer, who is a um, an advocate, a lawyer in South Africa, he got the YouTube. He got like YouTube slash Mark Oppenheimer. I'm sure he's mad that I have MarkOppenheimer.com like. We're in. He's getting pretty famous, and we're definitely bumping up against each other as like low-level celebrities in small worlds. So, if you're out there, South African Mark Oppenheimer, I see you. I'm, I have my eyes on you. <laughs> um, this week, the three of us reflect on the murder of George Floyd and others, and the subsequent protests that have swelled from Minneapolis to Madrid. Hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets to decry racism and police violence and injustice. I have a lot to say about this, uh, as I'm sure that my co-hosts do as well. The first thing that I wanna say is that um, I'm really excited for people to hear a couple interviews that I did. Um, I basically commandeered the podcast from my co-hosts and my producers, and I said, there are three people I want to talk to, um, and I'm going to talk to them, and I'm gonna record them, and I think they're gonna be really excited to talk and to share. And indeed, when I reached out to them, all three of them were excited to do this. We're going to get two of those interviews on today and then one in a subsequent week at some point. One of them is with uh, my first cousin, Jason Kirshner, whose upbringing was a lot like mine, a couple hundred miles to the south in Philadelphia. But both of us were like middle class Jewish kids, fond of mischief. He was several years older with a difference, which was that he was black. He was biracial. So he had that one big difference with all that it entailed. And we had never talked about race before this episode. So uh, I hope you'll you'll stick around and listen to that. The other conversation that we're going to hear this week is with Rabbi Alex Ozar, who is the OUJLIC Orthodox rabbi at the Slifka Center at Yale. That's a long way of saying he's the Orthodox rabbi for Yaleys. But what's also really interesting is that Rabbi Ozar is writing his PhD on people's responsibility to tackle social injustice as seen through the lens of Jewish ethics, particularly Abraham Joshua Heschel, Hannah Arendt, and Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And I can honestly say that nobody I've talked with has ever spoken more clearly to me about how to balance multiple commitments and multiple responsibilities from a Jewish perspective than Rabbi Ozar. I hope you'll find that interview as challenging and interesting as I did.
2: He's also portrayed by Jason Bateman uh,
0: in the hit television show Ozar. So we will get to... (laughs) to Rabbi Alex and cousin Jason after we check in with each other. And um, I'll check in with myself first. And then I (laughs) want to hear from Stephanie Liel. Um, you You know, I don't respond with great clarity to moments of great injustice or trauma. I'm someone who seeks refuge in silliness and frivolity and binge watching television. It's a shock to a lot of people that when really terrible things happen, and not just the public police murder of a black man, but let's say a war starting in Israel or a terrorist attack in America. I retreat from those things often for a long time, which is a curious thing for a journalist to do. But that's that's my personality. It's how I encounter that. And, you know, I have the privilege to retreat from it uh, until the time when I'm ready to do it. The Squirrel Hill shooting being the great exception in my life uh, to that, as a lot of you know. so when I finally come around to think about it, I have trouble finding a sort of fixed point from which to stand. Like, how do I interpret something? And, you know, what, with what lens do I even figure out, well, what do I do? What is my responsibility? How do I think about it? How, do I have anything to contribute or do I just sit back and listen or absorb? And I think a lot of our listeners also have that sense of uncertainty when faced with like monstrous evil. So I really just want to offer where I am right now, and this will no doubt evolve, but I can't pretend to any greater resolution than this. I have three ways that I realize I look at monstrous evil, like the killing of George Floyd. And and the three ways are that I think I look at it as a journalist, as a Jew, and as a human being. And I'll very quickly say what I mean, because I really want to get on to Liel and Stephanie, and then more important, our interviews. Um, I think that I do encounter things as a journalist. Even though I also sometimes play MC or comic or whatever, my real vocation is is journalism, by which I mean the thing I think I'm best at is finding other people's stories to lift up and to share, that I'm better as an interlocutor. I am very, very uh, uncomfortable prescribing action uh, or even in those cases talking about myself and my feelings, but I think I'm very good at finding other people's stories to tell and then putting it into an article or putting them on a podcast or putting them on a radio show or whatever. So as a journalist, my first thought is whom can I go talk to who will teach me something and teach my audience something as a Jew? I always come back to the notion of justice. And I want to be very specific about that. That's not a mealy-mouthed concept. Like, I believe that the Jewish God or the Jewish conception of God is one of justice, not one of love, not one necessarily of forgiveness, because in Judaism, forgiveness is between people, not between the person and God necessarily. But justice is the thing that God expects of us and ultimately is the thing that brings about the world to come if you believe in such a concept. And so we are not free to look away from injustice. Even if we briefly put our heads in the sands, we have to take it out. And Torah does not say only when Jews achieve justice within their Jewish community. It the world has to be justice filled. And that comes from Jews observing mitzvot and creating a template for humankind to observe God's laws. Then the third thing is as a human being, and that's often where I struggle the most. And that's why I was one reason I was so pleased to do these interviews this week is okay, fine. So I'm a person, I'm a citizen, I'm a, a dad, I'm a resident of a particular town. Like, what can I do? And I'm often overwhelmed by the fact that the first place I want to write a check to or give money as a journalist, I know I will often find out is a place that doesn't spend it well. I actually almost attended a particular march this past week and then found out that that particular march was being run by people who were politically opposed to people running like a more authentic or important march and that there was whole and I just got so nervous and scared that. I then retreat back into journalist persona and say, well, I'll just find people to talk to. So I sometimes find those three identities in conflict, but I also have like made my peace with the fact that everyone has identities in conflict and different obligations. And I just try to figure out which one has to come to the fore at any given time. So it's a little discombobulated, but I hope it's candid. And um, I don't know, Stephanie, where, where are you at with these things?
1: You know, I think what's interesting, you're talking about like, what perspective are you coming to this with? Um, and for me, what I've been thinking about so much over the past few weeks is, is I'm coming to this um, as an Ashkenazi Jew. Like that is the that is the prevailing thought that I've had. Um, of course, there are Black Jews for whom these issues of racism and prejudice and violence, these are real issues to them. These are lifelong issues, and it's taken us way too long to talk about them. But I've also been thinking about the Jews like me who are what we call white passing, right? I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. Both sides of my family hail from Eastern Europe, um, which I think is a cute euphemism for uh, fled Eastern Europe. Um, (laughs) But what I mean by that is like, I'm very pale. I'm very light skinned. Um, And what that means practically for me is that, you know, I don't worry about getting followed in a department store. I don't worry about what would happen if I were to be pulled over by the police. Um, And what it means is that I'm functionally white. And it's, it's weird because, you know, my grandparents in Poland, like, certainly were not white. They were, they were Jews, and it was because they were Jews that their family and everyone they knew were murdered. Um, and here in America, I'm white. And what I keep thinking about is that I have to be able to hold those two distinct truths at once. Um, I come from a deeply persecuted people, but yet in these conversations, I am not at all the victim. Um, and I'm actually, in fact, part of the status quo in in ways that are unsettling and and worthy of unpacking and i i really do think that's why there are so many jews out there in these protests i know i don't know if you've seen there's signs that say black lives matter in hebrew there are rabbis leading their congregations in the streets i mean i see a lot of people who's Judaism, it seems, is is informing their activism right now um, and whose Jewish identity is sort of what's propelling them to speak out. I just think it's really, really interesting to see the way like Jews as Jews are there in these protests. They're not there as Americans. They're like Jews the, being
0: like Jewy, like Jews yeah, are jewing it up at like the my sign
1: is going to say something Jewish because I want you to know that I'm here as a Jew.
0: If you, don't, if you don't read Yiddish, you lose all the nuance. <laughs> I just want to say that uh, we're going to be running a piece, I think, next week in Tablet by Cole Aronson who is studying at a uh, yeshiva over in Israel. And it's about uh, sort of traditional, I would say largely Orthodox responses to hate and to racism, of which there is a literature. And he mentions, you know, as he gets to the very end, starting way back in Torah and working his way through, you know, medieval commentators, he gets up to the 1900s, and he mentions a rabbi who was—I um, forget which rabbi—who went down to the South to freedom marches and was handing out kipot. and he called them something like Jewish freedom hats or something. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful because I do think that showing up. And doing the identity politics that you have, showing up in the identity that you are is so profound. I mean, I think people should be like davening Mariv at marches. Oh, 100%. 100%. You also, know? if you think 100%.
1: about it, you know, so much of the conversation these past few years has been about like Jews in progressive spaces and, Jew, you know, whether maybe this is too much of a tangent, but but basically, you know, I love seeing Jews being Jews very publicly right now. Um, and that to me, like there's something really amazing about that.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Liel? so guys this
2: is uh this is a really difficult one for me mainly because and I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out but I didn't grow up here and even though I spent a lot of time educating myself about this subject a big part of me still feels like I'm this outsider looking in so everything I'm about to say and I'm I'm very inspired by you know the the candor and the thoughtfulness that you two have put into this and as our, our listeners don't know but could only imagine. We've had a lot of conversations this week on how to approach this. So maybe this is just my outsider's perspective. But the last few weeks really it's been kind of really strange for me. So first of all, you know, there was there was the fact that watching the murder of George Floyd really made me absolutely sick to my stomach, and and made me feel like um, you know anyone who doesn't feel the same feeling right now is completely alien to me. And I was actually pretty gratified to see a pretty wide consensus in America that that this was, you know, an evil deed that has to be addressed right away. Uh, But I'm trying to make a grander sense of all this. And Mark, like you, I I also revert to this, you know, perspective of a a journalist and a sort of, you know, dispassionate arbiter. And the first thought that comes to my mind, being very honest here, is this. Last summer, when Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn were being viciously attacked, like literally every week, for no other reason than being Jewish, we didn't really have a national conversation. We didn't have demonstrations even on this show which I love. You know, we had a moment in Hanukkah when a, a, a maniac walked into a party and hacked a Jew to death with a machete. We didn't stop the presses. And now we're sort of at this moment in which everyone is saying we need to halt everything and have an urgent conversation about racism in America. And here's my first feeling. My first feeling honestly is that I love it. I think this is a conversation deeply worth having. And now I'm in this point where I want to think about the way that we have it. So first of all, here's one not very popular observation, but one that's been kind of you know haunting me. I think you'd have to be crazy or a bigot or both, to say that racism doesn't exist in America, to say that racism isn't a major problem in America. I think you'd have to be just as crazy to argue as so many people, including you know, people in positions of great power, have been arguing this week that we're in the midst of some pandemic of prejudice and then American citizens are being murdered en masse for no other reason than the color of their skin. The facts don't support that. So to see mass demonstrations, some of them violent, all of them in defiance of very sensible public health regulations in the midst of a pandemic makes me uncomfortable. Even more uncomfortable to me is the fact that I don't really know who's running this these demonstrations. I... Haven't seen a lot of great reporting about BLM as an actual organization that's now receiving so much money. But let's be honest, I could get past all of that. I think that, Mark, just like what you said, sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the good. And I probably have enough epigenetic, oversized, inherited trauma in me to say that even if the movement isn't perfect, the cause still 100% deserves all of our support and all of our energy. And here comes the part. That is most difficult for me, and then honestly, I find just heartbreaking. Very little about this movement seems inclined to actually engage me as an ally, and everything about it seems orchestrated almost towards kind of you know shoving me into some kind of position of complacency. So here's the thing: I I really could not believe any stronger that it is our absolute sacred duty as Jews, as human beings, as Americans, as as anything, to work towards a society that's more just and more fair and more equitable virtually every person i've ever admired felt that very deeply but to me this kind of movement doesn't take the shape of kneeling or feet washing or all these other like frankly really weird christian rites that as a jew i just find completely foreign especially as you know and as an israeli i think this movement really needs to begin with a difficult conversation about the assumptions that we share and about the assumptions that we don't. And if we were having this kind of conversation, I'd like to know, for example, what African-American leaders think of the fact that so many synagogues for some reason across the country were defiled in these last few weeks. I'd like to know why so many prominent people still support Louis Farrakhan, who's a Holocaust-denying, homophobic creep who deserves no one's love and respect. And you know what? In turn, I expect to be asked some really hard questions myself, including some that will probably force me to completely change the way... I question things. But if on the other hand,
0: uh you're going to come and tell me to kneel and move over, I'm just not interested. You know, I do want to say and I don't I do believe that every human being, I mean, ultimately what people want to thrive is is freedom, right? That that literally is what we're fighting for, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that you get to freedom by creating monadic templates and saying like this is how you must and this is a lot of what I talked to Rabbi right. Ozar about, right? That like you can't say to someone whose tradition says, don't kneel, <laughs> right? Who's, I mean, you know, my children are are taught in Hebrew school that Jews only kneel or or prostrate themselves uh, twice a year, uh, mm-hmm. during Aleinu on Yom Kippur and uh and on Tisha B'av. Mm-hmm. And I think I had that right. But like that idea, that kneeling and the foot washing That went on is specifically christian it is specifically christian i mean it is it is in fact there are foot washing baptists to this day they're small and so everyone has to speak out in the way that they want and they have to honor their own not only their own eccentricity and their own ethics and their own sense of what's right but also their own gifts right like there are people whose form of witness uh in fighting back against racism and against murder is going to look very different and be all the more powerful to the movement because it's not what the other people are doing. And so I do share your discomfort, Leo, with the idea that, um, and I don't think anyone is forcing any of this. I think people have themselves almost out of a lack of creativity. Some people have decided, okay, well then we'll wear, <laughs> Congressman so-and-so will wear the kente cloth and so-and-so will wash feet and whatever. They they fit themselves into particular symbolic modes. But I, I, it, it makes me uncomfortable as well as, as a Jew and as someone who prizes freedom of thought and, and authenticity, you know that some of the people don't want to do that and are doing it because they feel it's expected of them rather than because they feel that's their most authentic witness against injustice.
2: Mark, I, I totally hear you. I, I want to end on a, on, a, on a really, really different note because honestly, look, I've, I've been thinking about almost nothing but these last couple of weeks. And I really want to focus on what matters here. And here's what I think matters. I think what matters is that we're witnessing this moment of great moral awakening. Uh, and I think that whatever kind of swells of emotion uh, and and high kind of tension that we're feeling is going to subside. And what we're going to be left with are some really valuable conversations. and And that is the work that we're going to have to do. And here's the thing. I actually think that the work that we have to do is way more complicated than we think. Sure, it's about racism. A lot of it is. But it's also, if I may, a lot about income inequality and the way it condemns you know so many citizens of the richest freaking country in the history of human civilization to to live in shameful and dehumanizing poverty that's a conversation that we have to have and this is the work that i very much personally want to do and and, and want to do in an atmosphere of openness and and i've i've been searching for this like one perfect quote with which to end and it came from a great uh, uh, English rabbi, uh, G.K. Chesterton, famous <laughs> Catholic thinker. Great uh, Catholic. Wasn't he like vaguely anti-Semitic? You know, in the British way, in which you know, just as much as is socially acceptable. But but get this, because right. I think this only, is actually, He was
0: only as anti-Semitic as necessary, is, as, is exactly, what I think the in, British say.
2: <laughs> in order to get into the club. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was asked, so this newspaper in England in the 20s sent out a questionnaire to writers and thinkers, thinking them what they thought was the biggest problem with the world today. And Chesterton had an amazing answer. Here's what he wrote. I am. I'm into that. You know what? We're the problem, but we're also the beginning of the solution. And I hope that instead of having this kind of public conversation in which we always feel that the right instinct is to look at other people and sort of say what they have to do better and how they're sinning and how they need to improve, we start with ourselves. And with myself, I say... I have a lot to learn and an episode like today's fills me with absolute joy.
1: What I think we're going to do here and what I think like this podcast not just can but like has to do is basically like model how to create a space for for these difficult conversations, right? Like with people who disagree all the time but but are coming to this with good intentions. And so when we were preparing for this episode, I just kept thinking I really hope I don't say the wrong thing. I really hope I don't offend anyone. I really hope I don't make anyone mad. And and what I realize is that, like, in these conversations, we are going to say the wrong thing because we are being open and honest about it. And so I, I think that is what we can sort of offer listeners. I think we've been doing this inadvertently for all this time. And I think especially now, difficult conversations are important and and they're hard and they're unpleasant. And I think that's what we're all doing right now.
2: Amen. And I, I'm 100 percent aligned. I mean, another... All for the difficult conversations, if indeed difficult conversations we're having. Here's another thing that I'm I'm really proud of us for not doing. Like I'm really proud of us for not presenting these conversations in a sort of tokenizing manner instead of saying, Mm -hmm. okay, we're gonna have
0: this one race relations episode and then not worry about it. We don't ever wanna say, okay, we checked that box, right? Like we truly care about the diversity of our audience, of of you know, Am Yisrael, of Amcha, like God's people. And we care about the Gentiles, too. We love you, too. We created a space for you on the show. A safe space for Gentiles. But we also have to keep it like a super safe space for Jews who disagree. And I want to, you know, if I could just go Pittsburgh for a moment, uh, I want to do it for two reasons. One is that I want to lift up the name of Antoine Rose II, who was an unarmed 17-year-old, shot three times and killed by an East Pittsburgh police officer just a couple months before the 11 were killed at Tree of Life Synagogue. In Pittsburgh, um, that we re- went and did that special episode for, and his name came up a lot. You know, it you couldn't do the research that I did there without hearing his name on the lips of high school students, Jewish and African American, and in some cases, you know, Jews of color on the lips of police officers I spoke to, public school teachers, rabbis, etc. And there were marches um, around his death, and it did make the news a little bit internationally. But it's not a name that people know right now the way they might know Ahmaud Arbery or or George Floyd. And, you know, a girl said to me, a high school student said to me, she was black and she said, and this was someone who had many Jewish friends and and was deeply interested in peace for all peoples. And she said that um, when Antoine was killed, there was like a little bit. And then when the Jews were killed, it's all we heard about for a year. And that just seemed a little unfair. And, you know, one could nitpick and say, well, one death versus 11, or, but that would be That would really deny the spirit of what she's saying, which is that, you know, Jews have a particular relationship right now with authority, both with the media, which does cover our travails a lot, though, as Leo points out, I think not as much as they should, given the rate at which we are victims of hate crimes. But also a relationship with the police who rushed into a synagogue to save 11 of the 22 people there. And so we're at a very interesting moment where a lot of Jews getting to your point about difficult conversations, right? Where a lot of Jews have never felt more fondly toward the police. And that's not crazy. That is not crazy. That there are Jews, especially those who remember time who are refugees, who have come from places even today, where to be even a non-observant, non, you know, keep a wearing Jew is still to have a target on your back for being Jewish at all. And they come to this country where, in a huge national episode, the police rushed into a building and four of them took bullets. To save Jews. And the gratitude is immense. And now a lot of them are, for the first time, confronting the fact that there are communities of people who do not feel that way about the police. And that is a difficult conversation to have. And it's not simple. And I think that we, as a podcast, have to create the space for people to feel all sorts of things about that. And we trust that they don't deny the humanity of anyone who's killed in doing it, but to recognize that, like, there are a lot of Jews who are inevitably going to feel conflicted.
1: By the way, even on a smaller scale, think about it. Like, I'm so used to seeing a policeman or some kind of security at all of these JCCs that we've been visiting around the country. Um, In Manhattan, I mean, it, it seems pretty normal to see, like, a cop car at a synagogue, just just there, just there on a Saturday, you know, like it's weird how we've sort of accepted. I mean, even more so in, in Europe, where you basically have to like go through a security check to get into any synagogue. The counter to that, of course, is, you know, there's this great piece that Carly Pildes wrote for Tablet, which is called Cops Don't Make All Jews Feel Safer. And she sort of points out that if you're a Jew of color, seeing a policeman at your place of worship is actually not the comfort that it is to other people. So like there's so many layers to all of this.
0: And we went through that discussion at my shul. The security discussion, and I'm on the board and I'm not going to rehash it all, but like people of really good faith, uh, were very candid and raw about both of those questions and people. We talked about the fact that not everyone encounters the police with the same sense of security and optimism. And we talked about the fact that some people said, I'll never come to shul again, unless there are police there. And so our podcast has to be at least as open and frank and candid as the average shul board meeting, but hopefully with a lot (laughs) less, less vitriol. (laughs) And better snacks. I was just going to say that. Hopefully a better (laughs) snack.
1: But, you know, like, I guess I am centering this around us by talking. I mean, this is a Jewish podcast. Literally, that's all we do is make things about Jews. But, you know, I think we are at a really, really interesting place in this moment where all these issues that are being talked about and debated on on a wider stage we actually like, have particular relevance to this community as well. And we have sort of like, I think, an, an, a unique insight that I think we can probe and and sort of unpack a little bit and then contribute to the wider conversation.
2: We made this the, the golden of Medina, right? The golden country for, for Jews and, and Jewish ideas and Jewish cultures for half a century, precisely by working diligently to make sure that this is a society That slowly and gradually built coalitions that overcame a lot of its inherent biases. Our work is very far from done. You could argue about, you know, just where along the arc of history we are. You could argue about what the best way to build a coalition is. And this is what we're doing here and having these difficult conversations but you can't for a moment say that uh, you know we're exempt now because we've somehow arrived at the end times for American Jews because we got into the country club baby exactly right no we didn't the work is only just begun.
1: we've only just begun <laughs>
0: Jason Kirshner works and lives in a southern state way too far from his first cousin, me. And it will help you understand this interview if you know that the acronym USY is United Synagogue Youth, the high school youth group in conservative Judaism. And it was a real pleasure to catch up with him earlier this week. Jason cousin. How are you?
3: Yeah, doing well. This is actually the first time I've ever been interviewed for anything.
0: It's an honor. Even before I thought of interviewing you, I was actually thinking a lot about you because in quarantine, I was going through old correspondence. Like I have boxes and boxes of old letters, which I rescued from my parents' house. There are like probably a thousand letters there. Easily 200 of them are from you. Really? (laughs) Like, do you remember how like robust our correspondence was?
3: Look, you were one of my favorite parts of my childhood, because whenever you came by, we just got into all kinds of stuff. And you were almost like a little brother I never had.
0: You were the older brother I never had. I was the younger brother you never had. We're first cousins. I lived in Springfield. You lived in Philadelphia. So four and a half, five hour drive. I was there all the time. You're four years older. And I feel like there was this window... It definitely included when you got your driver's license because like that was a central part of several years of my childhood was like cruising greater Philadelphia with you. There were three components to pretty much every trip. And there were dozens of these trips. We would get fast food. We'd go to a movie, probably at the Andorra 6 on Ridge Avenue. Yes. Yeah. And then we would go CD shopping. Like we always hit up Sam Goody or Strawberries and you would just load up. You'd get, I don't know, probably three or four CDs.
3: That's why up until a couple of years ago, I had credit (laughs) cards. There we
0: go. I don't know. Like, is that your memory?
3: Unfortunately, a lot of my youth just, I don't remember, um, probably due to the fact that most of it was really stressful. Now it's starting to come back that we were right all the time. That's how we uh, connected in terms of knowing when each was going to be in town. But I do remember coming up to see you guys several times. I think the last one was in 2001. And I remember that because I got randomly searched at the airport. It was after 9-11 when I came up for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I walk in the airport and they're like, random, you, you, it was, it it was like, there was one token white guy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I remember like, this is my sense of humor about that. It was wearing this big yellow jacket, bright yellow, and I had a backpack and my computer bag and they're like, take off your shoes. I'm like, I'm getting the shoe. I heard about this. Here you go.
0: (laughs) So like in this current moment, it occurred to me like, we never talked about you being black ever. Like not once in all those letters, like those letters were always about John Hughes movies, rock music. Sometimes you'd fill me in on girlfriend situation. You seemed nothing stressed you out, like from the point of view of someone four years younger who just idolized you. It's like, wow, he's got wheels and (laughs) like what what could stress him out? So
3: I don't know, like what was going on with you? I think. A lot of things I wasn't recognizing, uh, which goes into race. Apparently there was a lot of racism directed towards me, but I didn't recognize, because I get very tunnel-visioned about things. I've never really been good at nuance, and uh, a lot of that stuff is very nuance-based. People will make offhand comments, or they'll do stuff behind your back. But I remember bumping into those walls without realizing what they were, and just getting really frustrated. It's kind of like what the Germans call weltschmerz, which is... You know, the real world doesn't jive with the world you
0: see. Like, what's some of the stuff that you look back now and feel you didn't see? Are there specifics you can think of that you'd want to share?
3: A lot of it that was happening behind me was at synagogue. Because, like a lot of Jewish kids, if not most of them, you know, you have to get bar mitzvah, so you got to go to Hebrew school. And when I got past bar mitzvah, I continued to go because my mother, she said... You don't have to, but I really want you to get confirmed. And I'm like, okay. So I went through that process. And I kept going, and there I started to run into more noticeable things because I became USY president for two years. And when you take on a leadership role, suddenly people become more uh, vocal about stuff. In my senior year, somebody came up with the bright idea to increase membership in USY, which was always a hard thing to get people to do. They decided to give an honorary one-year membership to the Bar Mitzvah Kids, but the USY president was supposed to present that so they go through the torah reading and then the rabbi would say congratulations here's whatever we're going to give you and then he would go into a sermon so i was supposed to come in right before the sermon and i'd walk up and say on behalf of usy as president here's a one-year membership and then that was supposed to be it but i thought that was boring and so i would take like four-line poem something that would actually pertain to whatever the uh, Torah portion was about. And it slowly morphed into this little mini little sermon. And I kind of looked at it as I'm the rabbi's warm-up act. And uh, <laughs> we got this assistant rabbi. He was a real tool. And he said to me, uh, Yeah, we've had some complaints about you doing the making a little speech. Can you stop doing that? Now, I, I took it as offensive. But it just started to dawn on me it wasn't just that I was upstaging the rabbi, which I wasn't. It was who I was. It became clear, uh, even though everybody involved, including that rabbi, would say, oh, it's not. We know that nobody's going to complain about anybody else doing it. I still had to do the little thing, and I've been going to the Saturday services for so long, that I knew the cadence. They always kept to a certain time. It always ended at noon. And the rabbi's speech was always at 11.20, give or take a minute. I would get there at like 11.15, so I didn't miss it in case they were early. And then as soon as it was over, I basically would walk straight out. You know, get off the podium, walk right out. I did my duty. If nobody wants me to do anything, I'm going to do the perfunctory. And this one time was really cool because as soon as I walked in, my name was called. So I basically walked in, walked up, said blah, 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 and walked right out. Right. <laughs> and it went to Sam Goody probably to kill time. So my mother <laughs> didn't know I was skipping out. But uh, Rabbi Wolpe was the head rabbi. He and I always had a personal relationship. He came to me one day uh, after service and he said... I heard what happened. I want you to know. I want you to continue doing it. Uh-huh. So, the next week I did like... a Five minute thing, and it was probably about race relations or something like that, just to stick it to the assistant rabbi. And I remember looking at him, he was just like
0: stewing a little bit. What about in sort of all those leadership roles? Almost every space I saw you in, whether it was your shul, whether it was on some sort of trip. I remember once you took me with you when you were the summer camp counselor at the day camp where you worked in the summer. Almost every space I saw you in, if I look back in retrospect, it's like you were the only black person. <laughs> Yes. Like, was that something you were aware of at the time?
3: Not until second half of high school, because that's when dating was a real challenge. Uh, I don't know how many times I got told you're a nice guy, but, uh, and then later on, it became clear that the but became more about, my parents will like you, but... Once email became a thing, once everybody started getting computers, I actually had an email pen pal relationship with Rabbi Wolpe and I flat out asked him after so many years of hitting certain walls and glass ceilings and stuff like that, I said to him, if we're taught in the Jewish religion that we've been oppressed, including genocide, several times, why are so many Jewish people I meet racist? And he wrote back. I thought it was going to get more of you know that not deflection, but where people give a perfunctory answer. He flat out said, "I really wish I knew." Wow. Um, because we had uh, there was a, an older couple who were black who joined the synagogue, and I'm sure they got it worse than I did. It's. Kind of why I haven't been to synagogue really in a very long time. It just really stuck with me. And my mother was always, I want you to marry a nice Jewish girl. And I kept saying, I can't find one that doesn't have parents who are racist.
0: But your mom was very much Aunt Beverly wanted her kids to marry Jews. Yes. And here you are in this situation where a lot of Jewish women by no means all, oh, but a lot of Jewish women would be reluctant to date or marry you or their parents would have issues with it, which would make them reluctant or like, that must have been very painful.
3: Yeah. Uh, because especially growing up in the area I did, it was very affluent and it, it was, it had such a Jewish presence that we got off for the high holidays at school because there were enough kids right. who were taken off and it's only probably been recent where people are much more open to the concept, and it's probably because they're seeing it in movies more. They're seeing it on TV as naturally occurring things. The concept of interracial dating? Yeah. Once people start to see it, it normalizes, and they start to, but still, people have, and especially with what's going on right now, I've noticed that, and I noticed this at work, too, and I work in a very enlightened environment. Even there, when you get up to certain issues I've noticed a lot of like white people are really hesitant to cross into certain territories because they don't know what they can talk about and what's going to be offensive. And and they're honestly not wanting to make those mistakes and have themselves misunderstood. It showed me that there's a lot of nuances when it comes to race relations, not just one thing. it's And yeah, I ran into that quite a bit. Nobody wants to admit that they've done something racist. I kind of often say that nothing brings out the racism other than being called racist. It's like the best way to find out where somebody stands. But, yeah, it was a constant issue for me. I remember my mother's brother, Myron, he told me at one point that they'd suggested, based off of the situation, to have moved closer to him in Mount Airy, which was much more open to diversity.
0: Was there racism in our family?
3: Not so much on my father's side, which you're on, but on my mother's side. I've heard stories of them calling me names when they first found out my mother was going to adopt. But one little side note, I found out that it was my father's idea that when they were going to adopt, he wanted to adopt somebody who would otherwise have trouble being adopted. And my mother said, I want a Jewish baby. So boom, hit the lottery.
0: (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> I did always I, that's, I'm so glad You brought that up I mean I think The story I heard It sounds like It was pretty much right Was that your parents Collectively decided That they were hoping To adopt a holochically Jewish and black child And they did Yeah So but that's interesting I hadn't heard like What came from my uncle What came from your mom Like No
3: that's the story Kay told me that Your stepmother Yeah I learned things About my father And, and her all the time uh, Every time I talked to him And I, it just makes me Admire them more It's like You did what In the 60s Like, my father apparently wanted to go down, I think, the Freedom Rides, and my mother said, nope, you got kids. And she knew how dangerous it was, but I think protesting like that was her kind of line in the sand, like she wouldn't
0: cross. Yeah. Did they give you any version of the speech, of the talk, that black parents often give their children about how to manage themselves when they encounter a police officer?
3: It was pretty much how to present yourself when the cop walks up. Always have your license, registration card, and your insurance card. Have them up on the steering wheel. Just, But it wasn't under the guise of the cop might see your racial background, and but that stuff also wasn't necessarily publicized then. You didn't see it on the news all that often. I'm sure if my mother was around and I was growing up now, she probably would have given me the speech. But back then, it was not something the white America really knew about.
0: So when you were in your junior year of college, you went to Israel. Did it feel different being black in Israel, which has a, a different racial dynamic?
3: Actually, over there, I had a complexion similar to Israeli. In fact, I had an American come up and try and speak broken Hebrew, and I had to stop him. Uh, (laughs) But no, over there, I did not stick out. In fact, if I could speak fluent Hebrew without an accent, nobody would have assumed it was anything but Israeli. So it was completely different. Now, they do have racism because they airlifted the Ethiopian Jews, and they're very dark. Now, when I was over there, I basically was treated as American. (laughs) But I actually felt very comfortable over there and felt no real racism. And now
0: you live in the South, in the American South. And what are your thoughts about the protests in your in your Kishkes? What are you thinking?
3: I love when people have a good cause to protest, and this one's different because I see a lot of white people jumping in. Uh, it's kind of like the perfect environment to allow everybody to come through. Plus, everybody was home, and they all saw what is an unequivocally wrong way for somebody to die in police hands. And we had some violence here, but. Washington Post has analyzed a lot of these. The violence starts when the cops show up like they're about to invade Paris in 1939. Outside of that one night, we had a curfew for a few days. and It's been peaceful since then. And I'm kind of encouraged about that. I think changes are coming soon. As far as I'm concerned, it's really easy to speak from a third-person perspective. And mine is very suburban. The one area I'm really hesitant to put in is my personal perspective. Because people would expect me to give one viewpoint, but I can't.
0: Meaning, because you haven't had those particular experiences? With I've had none officers. of them.
3: The worst experience I've had with a cop is he pulled me over for speeding and he says, You have a clean driving record and uh, I'm going to give you a warning. You've-
0: I mean, I think all of us, I think everyone's worried if their narrative fits. Do you worry that white liberals will? reject your narrative
3: my perspective and experiences largely would fit the same narrative as a lot of suburban enlightened white people which is why i don't give my personal opinion but it's your experience i mean it's your truth right yeah yeah but in all honest i'm afraid of any kind of backlash it's like why are you chiming in with that perspective because you can't relate even if people don't add that extra layer to the cake of the opinion my hesitance is probably very similar to a lot of white suburban kids it's like you know okay you should comment up to a certain point and from my in my inner thinking i hit that same wall
0: so when you're dealing with white people at work in your social life in your community Are there ways that you wish they would behave differently? A lot of white people are afraid to ask because there is a rhetoric out there that it's not the job of black people to teach us. Like we have to figure it out on our own. At the same time, like you're my cousin, I'll ask you. (laughs) What are you hopeful about in terms of how white people would act differently?
3: Well, in my experience, I call it the uncanny valley. Do you know the movie term? It's
0: like when special effects almost get a real person, but it's like you'd rather have it be totally fake than have it almost get there, but not quite get there, which really freaks people out.
3: Yeah, so since I started shaving my head, which everybody does across the board now, and I've got the gray hair, so my complexion is not that dark. And when people see me, and I think what they see is... It's like that uncanny valley, they can't tell because I'm not dark enough, and then they hear me talk, they see how I dress. I fall into the non-threatening scale, and I think when people think of people who are biracial, they think of somebody looking more like Barack Obama, who has a similar background, but he's darker than I am. And in America, if you're dark, even if you are mixed, you fall into the dark category. But I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm like, I don't know. And I think that's, those are the reasons why I haven't necessarily been affected in that overt, obvious way.
0: So good to catch up with you. I'm, I'm sorry that we live thousands of miles apart, but uh, it's great to catch up and we'll see each other when we're out of quarantine and stay safe. You as well. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. That was my cousin and friend, Jason Kirschner. Rabbi Alex Ozar is the OUJLIC fellow at Yale University, where he is the Orthodox advisor to Jewish students at the Slifka Center for Jewish Life. He's also a doctoral student in religious studies and philosophy at Yale, and he's working on a project about Hannah Arendt, Joseph Soloveitchik, and Abraham Joshua Heschel and their responses to injustice. I spoke with him earlier this week. Rabbi Alex Ozar, thank you for joining me on Unorthodox.
4: Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure.
0: Why don't you tell our listeners exactly what question you're trying to answer in your dissertation, which is, which is almost done, but is in process. What is the question you're trying to answer?
4: Most generally, and to put the matter abstractly, assume you are a citizen of a society in which there is structural injustice, which, which will take to mean injustice of which you and maybe no one is an individual author. You didn't do it. You didn't make these things happen. You were just born into a society where there are human beings that are oppressed more than they should be. And there is injustice going on. And the question is, what do you as an individual, what are you called to do in response?
0: And this obviously has tremendous relevance right now, because even though each of us individually might be responsible for some injustices, we are also asking as a society, how do we act responsibly, given that there are also big systemic injustices that we didn't personally author, but which we live amidst and might benefit from?
4: That's the idea. I didn't create the systemic injustices in our society. They were here before I showed up. They're going to be here after I leave, probably. What, if anything, can I do about it? And what ought I to do about it? And so I take my cue from Abraham Joshua Heschel. When it comes to injustices in free societies, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Um, And what I'm trying to do is spell out what that responsibility is and what it would mean to take responsibility.
0: You may never personally have authored a system of sexual harassment in the workplace or police brutality or inequality in medical care. You don't have guilt for those things, but you have some responsibility as a fellow, what, American, fellow human being. What what status is it that gives you responsibility for them?
4: So most basically each of us as a human being is responsible for all other human persons. And we are responsible to other persons for that responsibility. So I have a responsibility for you, Mark. If you are unwell and I am in a position to help you, then I have a responsibility to you to help you. And this is the, one of the points I'm trying to make, is that I'm not only responsible to you, but I'm also responsible to all those who care about you, which means that they can address a claim to me and say, hey, Alex, we've noticed that you are not treating Mark as if he matters. You are not only wronging Mark, but you're wronging wronging us.
0: How do we then move in the world, given that we have finite time and resources and cannot actually act on our responsibility to all other fellow human beings who are suffering? What is it that we ought to do?
4: Going back to Heschel, and I'm looking at a whole family of figures also Joseph Soloveitchik and Hannah Arendt. These figures coming out of Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, they are participants in a society which becomes maximally evil and which becomes a machine of genocide and destruction. They're horrified, but they're not perplexed by the fact that somebody like Hitler and the small band of criminals around Hitler did awful things. That they understand. What was confounding to them was that just the everyday people, their neighbors and friends and the people they knew all just kind of went along with it. Their average neighbor in Berlin was not responsible for the Holocaust. They weren't guilty for the Holocaust, but they had this conviction that there was something that they needed from them that they didn't get. The Heschel's line is that Worse than evil itself is indifference to evil. And Arendt says basically the same thing, and in Solveig the language is, the worst thing is to not hear the cry of the orphan, widow, and the stranger. So what I want to say is that our minimal responsibility with regard to a given injustice, our responsibility is not to solve that problem, to change society by ourselves single-handedly, that's not possible. Uh, What we are called to do is to not be indifferent, and that responsibility is to everyone else who cares. We have a responsibility to make clear to all of them that we care. And what that requires is that we accept some amount of cost, risk, and sacrifice in trying to make things better, to show that this matters to me and that because this matters to me, it should matter to you too.
0: Is the point of doing the something that we do, the actual good that will come of signing the petition, that we might be the signature that tips the petition into getting heard? We might be the $18 that allows the organization to hire a lobbyist or organize it, right? Is it the actual potential utility of the gesture or is it the symbolism either in that it matters to people who see me making that gesture or that in some sort of like mystical sense or metaphysical sense, we have honored the universe. Even if nobody ever knows that we made that gesture, we have struck, you know, a note of good in the eyes of eternity or God.
4: Both. It is required that you do not be merely performative. I can't just act as if I care. Merely or purely virtue signaling is may or may not be helpful. I need to be actually acting towards some form matter of redress of the injustice. But the reason why that matters is because of the performative expressive aspect. and Because that in making clear that I really do care and trying to do whatever I can, even in a small way to make things better, I call others to join me in making things better. Arendt, she says, look, there can come a point when you are a part of a machine of injustice and oppression, which is just so much larger than you and possesses so much overwhelming force that there's just nothing you yourself could possibly do. You just need to give up. But she can't accept that. She says, like, it's theoretically possible, but it can't be real. Because always, in any case, you always have the option of passively declining participation. You can always just say, I'm not going to do anything because I can't do anything. I'm just not going to help. I'm not going to make things worse. And if enough people do that, any system of oppression will come falling. This requires a lot of motivation. I think this is the point that is probably the least intuitive, and that I think people are the most programmed to disbelieve in, is the just the fundamental fragility of massively powerful systems of oppression. If you just look at the text in Exodus, it's very clear, it seems entirely explicit, that the oppression of the Israelites in Egypt was Pharaoh's idea. Clear. But the rabbis in, in Shemot Rabbah actually take a remarkably radically different view. They say actually what happened was a new king arose over Egypt. So what does it mean a new king arose over Egypt? This is the story was actually originally the people came to Pharaoh and the people said, Pharaoh, we, we want to oppress this. And Pharaoh said, you guys are a bunch of morons. That's a terrible idea. It's only because of Joseph that we have anything that we have and just oppressing him is just, it's just dumb. It's bad policy and they depose him. (laughs) They kick him out of the palace. And it's only after a few months later that Pharaoh finally, living out in the street, Pharaoh says, all right, I will oppress the Israelites if you take me back. And so they put him back on the seat.
0: So this is rabbinic legend. This is Midrash. It's not Torah for our listeners who are unclear. It's rabbinic legend around Torah.
4: Right. The rabbis seem to think that it, it actually has to have been the people. It's just a mistake to think that the leader in charge was the person who chose and ultimately authored the oppression. If the people, if the Egyptian people were not behind it, if they weren't actively demanding, then Pharaoh is powerless. I mean, this was Aaron's point too, and she she goes through in in her book on IFA, like an elaborate series of case studies, because everywhere that the Nazis met real opposition. Her biggest example is is Denmark, but there are a handful of other places.
0: Yeah, she has all those chapters where she goes to, like, and in Bulgaria, and in Romania, you know, Slovenia. She goes through all of these... It's actually, in some ways, the most boring part of the book, but actually the most important, as I recall.
4: Exactly. Because in every case, she's looking for what happened when people just said, no, we will not help you murder Jews. Actually, every time anyone put up principled opposition, the Nazis basically just folded. The more fundamental point is that that we tend to confuse violence and power. Nobody has power just through violence. Even Hitler can't make everyone do what he wants just through the threat of shooting them if there aren't people that actually support the project.
0: So transport that to America right now. And let's say that someone opposes a particular injustice but feels at a distance from it. How do people act? Like, what should they do? is there some way they can gesture resistance even when they're not present? Or do they have to go straight to writing a check? (laughs) Maybe they're in a rural area, it would just be like a one person getting no media coverage walking down the street.
4: There may be cases where you don't have the opportunity to do very much. But even where that happens, part of the fundamental core message here is that every individual injustice is an instance of something more fundamental which is that human beings aren't respecting other human beings as human beings, that there's some group of persons who don't seem to matter as much as they should in society. And that's always the case with regard to some class of persons, which means that even where I don't have the opportunity to protest, to resist, to, to say anything about this particular group being oppressed, Hey, I, I can still study and I can still invest in and I can educate, teach people, get people to be concerned about it and talk about it. But even just more basically than that, I can cultivate communities of mutual concern and respect. We all know that we're supposed to respect each other as persons, but we're all terrible at it. And we can all get better at it. We get better at it through having actual conversations with other people where we respect each other and actually listen and we're vulnerable to things that they say, the more that we create communities, we create relationships and communities and and individuals who are shaped by those communities, the more we'll then be open when someone tells us that there are classes of persons who are suffering under injustice. And if we ever get to a society where there are enough people who just care, just, just sheer concern, it matters to them that people are suffering under injustice, then we can make it go away with a snap.
0: So when should we be self-critical? When should we be self-lacerating and feel like I'm not doing it? How do we know that we're not just being smug? How do we know we're sleeping too easily at night? How do we know when we're doing it too easily and we should actually be driving ourselves a little more? What, what habits or tendencies can we cultivate to make sure that we're not letting ourselves off the hook too easily?
4: There's no formula. It's certainly always the case that we are doing less than we should. Virtually always, case, and we are always diluting ourselves. But the the one marker and part of the the model I'm trying to articulate, at least with regard to any injustice in particular, but even with regard to the global problem of injustice, the, the question I have to ask to tell the difference, the criterion I have to tell the difference between saying that I care and actually caring, is whether I am putting some measure of myself on the line. There's some cost, risk, and sacrifice I'm taking such that. Just from an objective interpreter who looks at the story of my life and what I'm doing right now, would say, "Well, gosh, it stands to reason that they really care. That they're not. And to put it really technically, if the fundamental evil that we're concerned about is indifference to evil, what we need to do is do enough so that it's clear that we're not indifferent. Which means that we positively means we care some amount. And to show that we're not indifferent means." That I accept some real cost. there's some risk. I put myself on the line.
0: do other people have the right to assign to us or prescribe for us the risk that we should be taking? And there are a lot of people who feel I think we all have a tendency to feel that our issue I mean, I as a vegetarian tend to feel like how could anyone not see the way in which they should make a small sacrifice, which is don't eat meat or or at worse, don't eat factory farmed meat? How can anyone not see it? I always want to assign my issue or my cause to them. Do people have a right to do that? How do you feel when you see someone saying, like, if you're not joining a reading group to get more enlightened about X you don't care about people or you're indifferent to evil. How do you evaluate a claim like that?
4: Not only do I think we have a right to that, I think we have a responsibility to do that.
0: To do that to other people.
4: Yeah, I think it's all building on a prophetic model of our responsibility to other people, building on the, the biblical prophets. Amos looks out at his society and for the first time in Israelite society, there were some new trade routes opened up and all of a sudden there was an upper class of extraordinarily wealthy people and had income inequality in Israelite society for the first time. And Amos is looking around and he's like, I can't believe it. there are people here. They have two homes, he said. They have summer homes and winter homes. How could that? They have uh, ivory beds. And he says there are people, the wealthy are extorting the poor. It's wrong because those people matter and we need to care about those people. And if they do, we all need to speak out. And so I, Amos, am going to risk my life. They almost killed him. Amos is, barges into the royal court, goes out in the street and tells everyone, you need to Fix what you are doing, because the one thing that God will not forgive is you oppressing his fellow children. We have a, a fundamental responsibility.
0: Well, I think we create immense suffering in the animals and just as bad immense suffering on the in the industry that exploits workers and denudes and destroys the environment to give us that meat. So I should be telling people that.
4: Yeah. So if you think that really matters, what that means is that you think it matters to everyone. You think it matters objectively, not just to you. It's incoherent.
0: To not say um, for
4: you it. to not address and not address demands.
0: But then it's also okay for people to hear me and encounter me with good faith and give space to it and then say, basically, that's great, but I've got other fish to fry. I'm working on protecting a woman's right to choose. Or I'm working on protecting the rights of the unborn. However they you know, like <laughs> I got another project.
4: The responsibility that I have that corresponds to your responsibility to speak out is to give you a hearing. I have to take you seriously. Which means like you you may be full of it, you may be just trying to manipulate me. You may just be trying to show me how great you are and how wonderful and righteous and virtuous you are. But I think I have a responsibility to take you seriously and precisely to the extent that you are willing to accept cost risk and sacrifice in proclaiming your message. But taking you seriously doesn't mean that I accept your claim. I can give you a hearing, consider it in all its depth and go through every fact and analyze it and then come to the conclusion that you're wrong. Or, yeah, I may come to the conclusion that it's not quite as urgent as you think. Like, this shouldn't be our top priority. But the one thing I do have to do is really genuinely listen.
0: In the shift from guilt to responsibility, that, as Heschel said, some are guilty, but all are responsible. I know people who feel guilty all the time, maybe about specific causes they're not attentive enough to. But sometimes it's just a personality trait. They just feel that they're failing. What sort of role do you assign guilt. It seems to me in the Jewish tradition, it's very specific. You're guilty for committing a specific act that you can atone for, that you can rectify. But am I right about that? And how do you see it in the sort of grander philosophical tradition?
4: I, I again, very strongly follow Orange on this point. And sh- she was reacting to after World War II. So there was a very powerful movement in Germany to like accept guilt in some way, some form of collective guilt for what Germany had done. And that this was encouraged by many. And I had thought that this was this was generally not helpful. It was deeply counterproductive because it was, it was merely sentimental and it was self-indulgence. Her line there was it's it's a kind of mirror of Heschels, is that if everyone is guilty, then no one is. Right. And feeling guilty and being like absorbed in your own feelings of remorse especially if it's for things that you didn't really do, like you just were born into a society where these things happen or you didn't manage to save the world. She just like focusing on your own feelings doesn't make the world better. It just doesn't help. And in fact makes things worse because you become absorbed in yourself. What matters is is not guilt, but taking responsibility. What can I do to make things better? And again, responsibility is, it's a great term because I can be responsible in the sense of liability. So I can be responsible for the car crash I got into. Right. But I can also be responsible in a prospective sense. I can be responsible for making things happen. I can take responsibility for fixing things, for making things right. better. Right, I can be responsible of being the kind of person who is on the lookout for ways that I can be helpful and make things better.
0: So finally, like give some takeaways to our listeners who are trying to figure out how to be how to be the best people in this moment, in any moment, but especially in this one. I want to crystallize for you. Tell me if I'm right. Number one, you are allowed to protect yourself and your own wellness and your own self flourishing. Number two, guilt is not productive. Action is productive. But number three, we are required to take risks and to take action and to sacrifice something. And we'll never get there. And there's no checklist. But like the love of a child, we should never be content that we're doing it well enough, that we always have to be checking ourselves to say, am I really doing the best I can? And we should be mournful when we're not. And that's probably a little bit always. Is that a good summation?
4: Yeah, that was excellent.
0: (laughs) <laughs> do, nice you wanna, do you want to do you want to add a four or a five to that?
4: The really fundamental point for all of us. A, I, I want to say that while Amos and Jeremiah and Martin Luther King Jr. are exemplary prophets because they act as public figures who go down as history for having spoken truth to the powers that be in on a societal level, but we can all be small scale prophets, and we're all called to be small scale prophets within the communities and groups of people that that we just naturally interact with our friends and families and and communities and we can all do the work of making ourselves and making our communities better equipped to hear the cries of the orphan widow and stranger and more ready to do something about it, to not be indifferent. That's really the the fundamental point, is is that we have to. We have a responsibility to make sure that we are never indifferent when we actually hear the cries of the widow and the orphan. And we need to make sure that we will hear the cries of the widow and the orphan, even when we haven't heard it yet.
0: Rabbi Alex Ozar, when this all lifts, I'm gonna buy you a drink to thank you for being one of our Jews of the Week on Unorthodox. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you.
0: A massive toda rabah, a thank you to St. Louis native Alex Ozar for joining us on Unorthodox. Mozletovs. Leal, do you have a mazel tov?
2: Oh I have a mazel tov.
0: So I don't know if you
2: saw this. This is silly, but like filled me with so much joy. So after the great mayor of New York City, the incomparable Honorable Bill de Blasio decided to weld shut the playgrounds of Hasidim. Some Hasidim in Brooklyn took the law into their own hands. They took uh, ball cutters and cut open the gates to the playground. This makes me think, you know how there's like this independent autonomous zone in Seattle right now? What if there's like one in Hasidic Brooklyn with like free trolling for everyone? Just like the, the People's Republic of Crown Heights
0: would be <laughs> amazing. It's a mazel to you. Brothers, Liel, are you in favor of obeying the the quarantine, or are you not in favor because you were critical of the marchers for ignoring it? But now you're you're praising the the Haredi Jews for violating it. I
2: I uh, being a libertine, I'm either in favor of everyone obeying it or no one
0: obeying <laughs> it. Uh, you just have to pick one. That's it.
1: He's never been a man of moderation.
0: That's right. Okay. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov?
1: So I do. I finally went into the office this week uh, after a long time. Well, this is not for me. And 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 while I was there, I saw Tablet's publisher Morty Landown, who has been to the office regularly throughout all of this. He has been he has been quite literally keeping the lights on, getting our writers paid, keeping everything in order, going to the post office to try to find our mail, and and seeing him in person again. I was just I was so overwhelmed with the joy at seeing not only someone I I work with and respect so much, but just someone who had done so much for our organization during all of this like it i think i also the, the human contact was really big <laughs> i'm like i'm about to cry right now <laughs> but you know i just he's an amazing person and we're so lucky to to have him uh at our helm
2: this would be such an incredible movie it's like the road or logan it's like hugh jackman as morty landown the one man going to the office in post-apocalyptic <laughs> coronavirus struck New York City.
1: Like our office was locked down. Like you had to get special permission to enter it. And he was there all the time. He rode a city bike there, did everything. I mean, amazing.
2: In a world struck by a plague, <laughs> one man checks the mail. Hugh Jackman I mean- <laughs> is Morty Landown.
0: The funny thing is a couple of weeks ago, Sid looks up to me. Look, Sid looks up from her pile where she's doing bills and she says, why is your check from tablet all of a sudden handwritten all the time? <laughs> And I said, oh, well, for some reason, the banks in New York don't work anymore. And Morty's just handwriting all of our checks. So it's like, Mark, why did they send you Israel bonds instead of payment? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a bar mitzvah check. And I have a second tablet based mazel tov uh, to Esther Werdiger, our beloved art director and dear friend who just had a baby boy last weekend. We are sending love to Esther, Marcus, Sonny and baby boy Silverman. We can't wait to meet him and to celebrate with you in person.
0: Yay, Esther. I have two two Mazel Tov's of my own. Um, The first one is to the podcast Holy Jewish, which is now in its second season. Season one, which I have listened to, uh, was about Jews of color. And you can find this podcast on iTunes. So a Mazel Tov to the very fine podcast Holy Jewish. I also uh, want to give a Mazel Tov to America uh, and to the Supreme Court. I want to give a Mazel Tov to Neil Gorsuch for being one of the votes uh, in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, which now extends workplace protections to queer and trans people throughout the country. Now, look, I happen to think this is a good decision. I'm gratified by it. Not everyone will. And that's fine. But I still want you to give the muzzle to Neil Gorsuch, who has absolutely alienated all of the people in the conservative movement who thought that he was going to keep queer and trans rights at bay. And I think just like I look Props for courage. I really do mean it. Like, this is one of the the great surprises. And whenever people vote in a way that's going to bring down great opprobrium on them or write something that's going to bring down great opprobrium on them, part of my heart leaps for joy because I think that freedom of conscience is so, so, so important.
1: Also, like, this is what's supposed to happen. The judges are supposed to, like, decide on each individual thing, not just, like, on a slate of things because of where they come from. Like, this uh, is the uh, system working is that what we're praising right now.
0: Amen. Right. Amen. Baruch Hashem. Uh, so uh, so a big mazel tov to the court and America, but but Neil in particular, who is, I do see all Gentiles as future Gentiles of the week. So Neil Gorsuch, come on down. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly unorthodoxpodcast Our show is produced by Josh Cross, who keeps calling us to the point where my wife says, if it's Josh Cross, don't answer. And Sarah Fredman-Ader, who's much more discreet and, and judicious about her calls. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, though right now by Kurt Hoffman. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision by the 800 rabbis, cantors, and Jewish professionals who signed the letter against racism this week. I will call out in particular, just pulling them out of the alphabet, Rabbi Susan Stone, Rabbi Simon Stratford, Rabbi Micah Streifer, Rabbi Steve Stroyman, Rabbi Karen Strock, and Rabbi Joshua Strong. We hope to someday come to you again from Argo Studios, but we're still in our basements. Cologne, friends.